there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Amy Carmichael had a very unusual experience, a long story that I won't tell this morning, but it involved uh, sort of cloak and dagger kind of stuff. Um, she was in contact with a man who was wanted by the law. His name was Raj. He was a brigand chief back in the forests where Donavour, the mission where Amy Carmichael was working, the mission that she had founded, some of their property bordered on the territory of this brigand. At any rate, that experience proved to her one of God's reasons why he had said no to a childhood prayer. As we all know, if we've learned anything at all about prayer, it is request, among other things, and a request can be declined. And when she was three years old, she learned from her elders that God answers prayer. She decided that she would test the truth of that statement. And there was one thing in the world that she wanted more than anything else, and that was blue eyes. <laughs> Amy Carmichael had beautiful, thick, dark hair, beautiful, dark eyes. But to her, they were not beautiful at all. She wanted blue ones. And so she knelt by her bed and prayed that during the night, God would change her brown eyes to blue ones. And in the morning, woke up with no doubt whatsoever in her mind that God will have, would have done what she asked him to do. She jumped out of bed, pushed a chair over to the dresser, climbed up, and looked into the mirror into the same brown eyes. And when she told this story years later to her children, she had hundreds of Indian children. Those of you who are not familiar with Amy Carmichael, she was an Irish missionary to India and had a very remarkable work, four children. She had a family of 700 children and 200 workers at one time. She was the mother to all of them. And she told this story of God's having said no. And she said she couldn't really remember whether the words were actually spoken to her, perhaps by an adult, or whether the Lord somehow spoke these words to her, but it came to her as a three-year-old child, isn't no an answer? God had answered her prayer, and the answer was no. But she could not have imagined then that the time might come when her life literally would depend upon her being able to be taken for an Indian. And that was what did, in fact, happen when she was dealing with this brigand. She was wearing the Indian dress, the sari. She had dark hair. She had dark eyes. If she had had blue eyes, it would have been a dead giveaway. There would have been no way she could have disguised the fact that she was not an Indian. So undoubtedly, God had many other reasons for giving her brown eyes, and we don't ever need to know any of God's reasons, but every now and then he gives us a little glimpse of why he has said no. 
And I doubt that there's anybody in this room this morning who can't think back to some very foolish prayer that you prayed. Now think about the course that your life might have taken if God had said yes to that one. Some of those boyfriends that you girls died a thousand deaths over, I can remember praying in the sixth grade that Bob Held would ask me to go to the movies with him. Well, now I wasn't allowed to go to the movies at all, but I just wanted him to ask me. Um, all of us have prayed foolish prayers, and we never know which the foolish ones are. So we don't pray for anything we, th we think is foolish, but every now and then God says no to something, and as we look back on the paths of righteousness in which he has led us, it's very clear that it was his mercy that refused. Some of God's greatest mercies are his refusals. In Matthew chapter 7, we read in verse 9, Which of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? All of us who are parents know what joy it is to give good gifts to our children. It's only the tiniest glimpse of the joy that it is to our Heavenly Father to give good gifts to us whom he loves. So when we think this morning about this topic, a father's gifts, let's remember that some of the things we ask for look like bread, look like a fish, but are in fact stones and scorpions. So we need to begin to learn that a father's gifts are perfectly chosen out of his perfect wisdom to suit what God knows is our real need. And we don't really know what our needs are ourselves, do we? The temptation of Eve in the garden, the eating of that fruit did not look to Eve like a bad thing. I don't think any temptation that really is difficult for us to refuse ever looks like a bad thing. It always looks like a good thing to us. That's why Satan is called an angel of light. He comes to us not with horns and a tail and a wicked grin on his face. He comes to us offering what looked like very reasonable, good, acceptable things which will help us, which will even enable us to do God's work better. We have all sorts of reasons why we think we need to have this or that or the other thing that we're hammering away on God's door asking him for. But Eve's temptation looked like a perfectly good thing. As, as the devil said to her, you will not die, you will become gods. And that certainly looked like a good thing. When I was a missionary, the, in the first year I was working in the western jungle of Ecuador with a tribe of Indians called the Colorados. And some of you know the story. It's told in my book called These Strange Ashes, in which 
there were three major blows to my faith during that year. Very good preparation for a yet bigger blow that was to follow not very long after that year. But in each case, it was a loss. It was the loss of something which to me was absolutely essential to the job that I believed God had called me to do. The first thing was my informant, the young, the man named Macario, who was helping me to reduce this unwritten language to writing. And I believed that God had given me a gift in linguistics. He had called me to Ecuador. He had directed me after I got to Ecuador to the tribe in the western jungle where there were two English women struggling desperately to learn a language that they had not been able to learn because it had never been written down and they had never had any linguistic training. And I had had the training and so it seemed like the perfect slot and I went there and found, in answer to prayer, Macario, the man who could not only uh, spend time with me at my price, but also uh, was not only fluent in Colorado, but also spoke Spanish. This was something I had never even thought of asking God for, because I knew the Indians didn't speak Spanish. But this man would, had grown up with the Indians. He was not an Indian. He was a white Ecuadorian, but he had grown up on an hacienda with these Indians. And so he was completely bilingual, wonderful answer to prayer. And we worked together very happily and very effectively for a few weeks, and Macario was murdered. And my question, of course, to God was why? And God's answer is almost invariably the same when we ask that question. Trust me, you don't need the answer to your why. I know, don't be afraid, trust me. Well, after that year was over and I moved to another tribe, to the eastern jungle, I left my materials with these two English women. Now, I, I did manage to reduce the language to writing without the help of Macadio, but it was far more laborious and much more uh, took me much longer than it would have with him. But I left these materials with these two English women, and one of them was traveling with all of those materials in a suitcase. She was traveling on a banana truck, which was the only way of getting out of that area of the jungle, up to the city, and all of the luggage was stolen on the top of the banana truck. People were inside, and this happened with dismaying regularity in Ecuador, that sort of thing, and the suitcase, of course, with the language went. Now we prayed. I've never prayed, I don't think, more earnestly for anything than I did when I learned that this suitcase had been stolen, that God would get it back to us. It represented about nine months of what to me was hard work, and work which was done not for myself, not for money, but for God. Now, why would God allow a thing like that to happen? God knew where the suitcase was. God knew it wasn't going to do that thief any good. He must have been very disgusted when he opened the suitcase, found out it was nothing but papers. And it was essential to the reduction uh, to writing and the translation of the Bible, the basic work of the Colorado language. So we prayed that God would get the suitcase back, and guess what? We didn't get the suitcase back. Some of God's mercies are his refusals. Now, I'm not going to give you reasons one through ten why God allowed the suitcase to be stolen. I don't know. I don't need to know. We never got it back. 
somebody else went in there, Wycliffe people went in and started from scratch and did the job over again. But I want to say three things this morning about what we are to learn through prayer. Now, for any who were not here last night, let me quickly give you what three things I said last night. I talked about a father's love. Prayer is to discover the character of God. It is as we pray that we learn to know him. The second thing is to learn to surrender myself to that love. And the third, to participate in God's redemptive work. This morning, under a father's gifts, three things. The first is that we learn to relinquish. The second, that we learn to accept the given. And the third, we need to learn that he withholds because he loves. The Apostle Paul said, how changed are my ambitions? Now all I care for is to know Christ. And I think it was probably when I was about 12 or 13 that I really made that my ambition. I wanted to know Christ. I don't know whether I could possibly have said then or can even today say that's all I care for, but it certainly is at the top of the list. I really want to know him. Now what is life for but to give me the opportunity to get to know him? Just as Shirley said in speaking of her own experience of becoming a Christian, she began to learn that all of the things which we look upon as negative are things which can be brought into fellowship with Christ and made material for sacrifice. What a difference. How changed are my ambitions, Paul said. And you remember he was the one who was very ambitious for other purposes, and he had a long pedigree, and he was an impressive figure. But he said to me, that is garbage. Now all I care for is to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. Most of us would gladly settle for knowing Christ without bothering with the power of his resurrection, if we could get out of that, because that in entails, inevitably, the fellowship of his sufferings. And I've had young people say to me, you're always talking about suffering. Do we have to talk about suffering? The answer is yes, we do, because we follow one who went to the cross, one who was crucified, put on that instrument of torture, and he asks us to take up the cross, our cross, and follow him. Where do we think he's going to take us? It's not going to be a rose garden every time. So one of the hardest lessons is learning to relinquish. And there are many things we all know that are impossible with men, that are possible with God. But many of us, I guess, have not really come to terms with the fact that there are many things which are possible with men that are impossible with God. And some of you are thinking, now she's really out to lunch because the Bible says nothing is impossible with God. 
Well, the Bible says a lot of things that have to be understood in terms of other scriptures. And we know that there were some things that were not possible because when Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, God is all-powerful, but we must remember that what men call love, when we think of God's love for us, is a very far cry from what God's love really is. We think of it as a sentiment, as a mood, as a feeling, as something that comes, and if it comes, we're lucky, and if it goes, we're unlucky, and that's the end of that. Well, of course, God's love is a consuming fire. And human love excuses where it ought to forgive, and it gives way where it ought to hold like steel, and it soothes where it ought to pierce. The love of God is a white heat, pure, fierce, and strong enough to save the world. Therefore, when his son cried in great agony and sweating, as it were, great drops of blood in the Garden of Gethsemane, if it be possible, let this cup pass, he was asking what, in terms of God's love, was not possible. It was a prayer that could not be answered because it was impossible for the Father to save the world and save his Son. And the mockers who stood by the cross and said to Jesus, himself he could not save, he saved others, himself he could not save, were telling the straight truth. It was a taunt, but it was true. It was impossible to save himself and save others. And my dear brothers and sisters this morning, let's remember exactly the same thing is true for us. We cannot save ourselves and participate in the redemptive work of the world. Jesus said, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. So the world's life depended on the son's death. And the father gave his son, his son, and the son gave himself to the father and to death. He said, nobody takes my life away from me. I lay it down of myself. So that is love. He relinquished his desire. If the son of man received a no for an answer, why should we be surprised? when God gives us a no. He is in the business of saving the world. This is his program, and he's asking us to participate in that business. Therefore, we must relinquish, let go of ourselves. That sad, sweet, stinking self, as my old professor, Mr. Ellie Maxwell at Perry Bible Institute used to call it. I'll never forget, after a long, evening of one student after another getting up and pouring out all his sins and confessing sins publicly. and I mean, it was a depressing evening, I'll tell you. And when he got through, dear Mr. Maxwell, who was a man of tremendous humor and tremendous strength and just straightforward biblical 
understanding. He stood up to pray in closing, and he said, Oh, Lord, just deliver us from our sad, sweet, stinking selves. And I think of that when I think of self-esteem. You know, I, I can't really work up a whole lot of self-esteem when I think of what myself is really like. So I must learn to relinquish, to let go, to trust him that he is always right. Trust him that he is always loving, his wisdom, his love, and his power, inseparable. He loves me. He's wise. He knows exactly what's good for me. And he can do it. He can change anything. Back to the story I told you last night about the little boy who wouldn't go into the ocean with his father. His father was wise. He knew the little boy would love it. His father was loving. He wanted to give him the fund. And his father had the power, but the child did not believe any of those things. So we must learn, if we're going to learn to love and trust God, is to love and to not love and to mistrust ourselves. Trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. If God is going to deal with you and me, God is going to begin a stripping process. We cannot escape that. The layers of selfishness have got to go. And it wasn't very long after I began to pray that God would help me to know him that I began to experience that stripping process, which I haven't got time to tell you about this morning, but part of it is in the book that Shirley mentioned, Passion and Purity, falling in love with a man and then having God say, will you still be willing to be single? It wasn't the thing I wanted most, I can assure you of that. Jesus prayed, not my will. Remember, his first prayer was, if it be possible, let this cup pass. The next time he prayed, if it is not possible, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. A total handing over, relinquishment, but a willed, voluntary offering of the will of the Son to the will of the Father. We have a mystery here, the mystery of the Trinity. Who can explain it? A conflict, a struggle, an agony between the will of the Father, which was all Jesus ever wanted to do, and this human will that said, if it be possible, let this cup pass. Learn to relinquish. Learn to accept the given. The next phrase in the Lord's Prayer, picking up where we left off last night, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, is give us this day our daily bread. Now, do you believe God will do that? Not very many of us, I suppose, have ever really suffered physical hunger. Not seriously, not for very long. When everybody says, well, I'm starved, and we haven't the slightest idea what that really means. But if we are not in a position to even worry for a second about where the next meal is going to come from, I take daily bread to mean all of our human needs, whatever God knows in his wisdom, love, and power that I need. That is what I'm asking for. Give me today, Lord, what you know that I need. 
I think I know some of the things I need, and so I pray for those. Lord, give me strength to get up there and talk to these people this morning. Lord, let me not say anything I don't need to say, and let me say all the things that I do need to say. That's the kind of thing that I, I think I need to pray for. But there are a whole lot of other things that may be on God's menu for me today that I don't have a clue about at the beginning of the day. When Lars and I pray together in the morning, Lars's prayer often is, Lord, you know what is on our schedule, what we think is on our schedule. We commit those things to you, plus all the things we don't know about that you know. Whatever might come in the mail or by phone or to the door. Give us this day our daily bread. When I was a student in college, I belonged to the Foreign Missions Fellowship, and there were some memorable old veterans of the mission field that influenced my life in that organization. And I remember one lady from Tibet, and she was a soldier of the cross, one of those priceless examples of godly womanhood and strength. And I have to confess that I don't remember anything else she said except one remark, but it was who she was and what she was that had its deepest impact on me. But the one remark that I have remembered all my life and stood me in very good stead when I lived with the Alka Indians was this one. We used to sing a missionary song, Where He Leads Me, I Will Follow. And I probably have sung that song a thousand times and raised my hand I don't know how many times when the song leader or the pastor said, now how many of you are willing to say to the Lord, where he leads me, I will follow. Well, she said, if you're going to sing that song, you better be prepared to sing what he feeds me. I will swallow. <laughs> and she told us some stories of bizarre things that she had been fed in the mountains of Tibet. And when I was offered big white fat grubs that come out of the heart of a palm tree. I wasn't really excited about trying those. And there were other things that we had that the Alcas gave us. It was part of my daily bread. It's part of what is involved in participating in God's redemptive work in the world, which for me at that particular time happened to involve living in a house with no walls with a bunch of people that didn't wear any clothes and ate some very strange things. No big deal. You know, it's really not a big deal that you have to make out of something like this. It's just the next thing on God's list. Very often there are things on God's menu that are not palatable to us emotionally, spiritually, physically, intellectually, whatever. I've told in my book, one of my books, I forget which one now, but about the time when Lars and I found ourselves on the wrong airplane. That was not a palatable experience. I mean, it was very embarrassing for us to realize that the plane had to be held up for 15 minutes while they brought the jetway back out to get these two stupid greenhorns that have never traveled before off the wrong plane. Anything at all that is not according to my tastes and preferences and what I want and what I think I need may very well be part of the answer to my prayer. Give me today what you know I need, Lord, my daily bread. This is the prayer that brings me right down to today's 
very ordinary need. And God knows exactly what measure, proportion, he needs to put on my plate. And so I must accept it as a given. The hands of a disciple should always be open, open to let go and open to receive. It is a yes, Lord. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you must give up your right to yourself. There's the relinquishment. And take up the cross. There's the acceptance. And follow me. Acceptance. The holiest people I know are the happiest people I know because they have learned these two lessons. They have let go of all the things that the world thinks are so essential to its comfort and its fun. This morning at the Terry's at the breakfast table, we were talking about the fact that America is obsessed with those two commodities. Everything has got to be comfortable, and it had jolly well better be fun, fun, fun. And if it's not fun, we don't want to do it. Well, the way of the cross can hardly be expected to be fun every step of the way. Joy is a very different thing, and that's something the world doesn't know one single thing about. And we Christians who know that there is a joy which is unspeakable and a love which passes knowledge, we ought to realize that we don't need all that fun and all that comfort. I was talking with a group of young mothers a few weeks ago in the Ozarks and trying to give them some very practical and down-to-earth stuff about their children. And I said, you know, you really don't have to make everything fun for the kids. They don't have to think it's fun in order to get them to do the dishes uh, or make their beds. In fact, the harder they have to work and the harder they may think the work is, the more fun the real fun becomes, the more they will enjoy their play. And any of, any of us adults know that's true. You don't want leisure all the time. You don't want vacation 365 days a year. It's working that gives the pleasure to the rest. So this poor mother came up to me afterwards just thanking me all over the place. She said, you know, I have been exhausted trying to make schoolwork fun and housework fun and church fun for my children, all three things that they don't want to do. And she said, I've just, you've just let me off the hook. I don't have to do that anymore, do I? I can teach my children, yes, it's hard, it's tough, and this is what we're going to do, and we are going to enjoy doing it. If you can't do what you like, then you are going to learn to like what you do. And that makes a big difference, you know, it makes a big difference in our lives as well as in the lives of our children. Part of what is on God's menu for all of us sooner or later is suffering. Sorrow, because it is the only way that we can be admitted into the fellowship of Christ's sufferings. Do we imagine that we shall somehow evade the cross and yet know him and the fellowship of his sufferings? So whatever the hard thing is in your life today, and I don't know what it is, maybe it's just some little adversity, not really deserving of the dramatic name of suffering. Maybe it is a huge thing that is breaking your heart. Will you receive that as part of your daily bread? 
God knows what he's going to do about that tomorrow. You don't need to know. He just asks you to accept it on your plate. He's handing it to you, as it were, on a platter. Here it is. You ask for your daily bread. Sorrow is part of the menu today. If it's all joy today, what's that for? Well, it's also that I may know him, to widen my sympathies, to expand my vision, to give me a greater tenderness and gratitude. The human side of intercession, Oswald Chambers said, is the circumstances in which I find myself today. The circumstances I am in and the people I am with. I have to keep my conscious life as a shrine of the Holy Spirit as I bring them before God. And the Holy Spirit makes intercession for them. Part of what's on your menu is the people that you are going to encounter today. A couple of nights ago, we were at the seminary, Gordon Conwell, where a man was giving a lecture on the subject of masculinity and femininity, an absolutely explosive topic in that seminary. And there was a very angry woman who took the microphone in the question and answer period. And before she even opened her mouth, her body language told us that here was a very angry woman because this man had talked about hierarchy and biblical submission and all of that sort of thing, which is anathema to so many. And afterwards, I was introduced to this lady in the hall, and my heart just went out to her because I knew that she did not want to talk to me. It was made it, she made it very obvious. I suppose she had some idea what side I was on. <laughs> and um, as she turned and left, I, I just thought about this. You know, I, I, there's nothing I can do for this girl except to pray, and I, don't, I didn't even know her last name, but I kept thinking about her that night and the next day, and then it just happened that that was the day that I came across this statement by Oswald Chambers, that I bring them before God. As I bring them before God, the Holy Spirit makes intercession for them. He knows that woman. He knows all that's behind the anger and the hatred. So I must learn to accept every single person, everything, every letter, every phone call, every irritating thing if the washing machine breaks down or my husband doesn't get home in time for supper or something. It's part of my prayer, part of the answer. You know that hymn that says, Choose for us, God, nor let our weak preferring cheat us of good thou hast for us designed. Choose for us, God, thy wisdom is unerring, and we are fools and blind. And I love that Swedish hymn, day by day and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet the trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I have no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure gives unto each day what he deems best. Lovingly, its share of pain or pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. There will always be enough of each ingredient, exactly proportioned according to his wisdom and his love. Do you believe that? Prayer should teach me. As I pray for my list, I look at it again, and then I say, well, Lord, you know, I don't know what these people need. 
I don't even know whether this thing that I'm asking you for is what I need most today. Maybe I don't need it till next year or next week. Lord, anything that's on my list that doesn't fit in with that great petition, thy will be done. Just scratch it, Lord. Scratch the stuff that doesn't fit your word, your will. And the bottom line of my prayers is thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Now I had one of the most wonderful letters that I, I get some wonderful letters and this is one of those marvelous ones. This lady is one of my radio listeners and she said, I just want to tell you of the sheer joy that the book A Path Through Suffering is given. And she talks about the joy of finding Jesus through pain and she speaks from experience. Friends say, we, my husband and I, have suffered much. On an intellectual level, I can say, yes, it is so. However, I experience such richness of the love of God, the exquisite joy of being his precious daughter, the wonder and awe of the love of Jesus on the cross for me and all of us. We have suffered through the tragedies of, and listen to this list, unemployment, protracted illness, a lost adolescent who nearly destroyed our family, through sexual abuse and violence, personal bankruptcy, my husband's fall from a roof and multiple surgeries, my parents, both of them, Alzheimer's disease. These are hard things. They have caused much pain, but through them I have learned to yield to Jesus. I have laid down fighting him in his ways. They certainly aren't my ways, but I have learned to trust him, to know that I know nothing and he knows all, that apart from him, not only can I do nothing, I am nothing. What freedom, what fullness of life in abandoning myself to his ways. I don't want to sound like I'm there. I daily work to die with Jesus. Sometimes I, some times are harder than others. But in the end, my will is resolved to say, yes, Lord. And my husband and I, have happily learned that our suffering is to bring life beyond ourselves. We cannot save the world and save ourselves. Are you prepared to participate in the saving of the world? My prayer is probably the most important aspect of that participation. And lastly, let's think about this third thing. God withholds because he loves us. And I'm going to skip over one of the petitions in the Lord's Prayer, forgive us our trespasses, and we'll take that up in the third talk. The next thing is, lead us not into temptation. And in my mind, that fits very nicely with, give us this day our daily bread. Because if God is going to give me what I need today, and not lead me into temptation, if he is going to deliver me from evil, I hope you can follow me here, he is going to have to say no to a lot of our prayers. And one of the reasons God says no is because God knows that that thing for which we ask so earnestly will lead us into a snare or perhaps into sin. I don't know if there's anybody here that plays the lottery. I don't know if you have a lottery in Mississippi, but we hear an awful lot about it in our state. 
And I imagine that some of those people that buy those tickets, they pray about that like they've never prayed about anything else. Maybe they've never prayed about anything else. And we've read stories about the people who win the 50 million bucks, and it does destroy them sometimes. Horror stories have come out of, of some people winning the lottery. Well, whatever foolish thing we may think we need, God in his mercy says no, because we also are praying, lead us not into temptation. I don't know where it is, Lord. I don't know where it's going to come at me. And Satan is a master of subtlety. He will come at you on your blind side. He will come at you with the very thing which will be the greatest temptation to you and to somebody else wouldn't be a temptation at all. Temptation, and I have to go back to Oswald Chambers again, and frankly, I've never really read much of Oswald Chambers until very recently. Somehow or other, I just picked up his, uh, my utmost for his highest, which I've had for many years. And uh, as I was preparing these talks, I kept coming across things that fit so nicely. And his definition of temptation is a suggested shortcut to the realization of the highest at which I aim. Satan's temptation is a suggested shortcut to the realization of the highest at which I aim, not towards what I understand as evil, but toward what I understand as good. God does not save us from temptation. He succors us in the midst of it. Succor, meaning help. He helps us in the midst of temptation. He will not deliver us from it, but he will deliver us out of it. He will not necessarily prevent the temptation from facing us, but he will be there with all the strength that we need. There's an old gospel hymn we used to sing in family prayers, yield not to temptation, for yielding is sin. Each victory will help you some other to win. Fight manfully onward, dark passions subdue. Look ever to Jesus, he'll carry you through. Ask the Savior to help you, comfort, strengthen, and keep you. He is willing to aid you. He will carry you through. So when I pray, lead us not into temptation, I am asking God to say no to some of those other prayers because God knows that it will not be for my good. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. And so his withholding the things we pray for is a revelation of his mercy and his love. And so you can put that under the heading of number one under the first talk. Prayer is a revelation of the character of God. We pray to discover the character of God. And as we pray, we learn to walk as a disciple, which means opening my hands and saying, "Let I give you this, Lord. I release it to you. I relinquish it. I say no to myself. And then I say, yes, Lord, I receive whatever it is that you want to give me today. Singleness. I don't know very many single women that really want to be single. I don't really think I know very many single men that want to real bad, but on the other hand, they don't seem to want to pay the price of the commitment that may be involved. These are very big things in our lives. I know because I've been single most of my life. He loves me with an everlasting love. Will you receive the Father's gifts? 
If your hands are full, if you're refusing to relinquish what you ought to relinquish, you won't have empty hands to receive them. May God give us grace to receive what he wants to give us and to relinquish what he doesn't. God bless you. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And will keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath are the everlasting arms.